Their children are learning, aren't they? That's right. In case you missed it last week, Declan has learned a lot. He came to accept Christ as Lord and Savior last week. I mean, Declan knew he, he was a sinner. He knew he did bad things. He knew he needed the Savior. And he knew the Savior's name was Jesus. So I mean, he's well on the way. So looking forward to having Jackson or uh, Declan be baptized here coming up soon in this month. All right. Well, last week, after inserting a little message pertaining to Thanksgiving, today we return and go back then to Revelation chapter 2 to finish our discussion we have pertaining to the fourth of the seven churches, it's the church at Thyatira. If you were here, you may remember we stated that Thyatira is labeled as the dark church, and it has a historical significance to church history known as the Dark Ages, which is relatively around the time frame of A.D. 590 to 1000. Now, we took a moment to explain that the Dark Ages were ushered in by the fall of the once great dominant Roman Empire. But simultaneously to that fall of the great Roman Empire was an unfortunate decision by the Roman Catholic Church to institute unsound doctrinal changes. Among the doctrinal changes instituted by the Catholic Church were threefold. First, it was a hierarchy within the church. Secondly, they wanted the idea of the worship of the Virgin Mary to be made part of the church service. And then thirdly, it was the idea and concept of purgatory. The doctrine they wanted to institute was not biblical. Orthodox Christians then rebelled. And as a result, a religious conflict arose within the church thereby spinning the church into a very non-productive time and a very non-harmonious time. In short, the church then was infiltrated with many false doctrines and pagan practices which slowly corrupted the church and led it into darkness. To say the least, it was a period, it was a time during all those years of religious struggle. Well, today I propose to you that churches are struggling once again. We have previously, in messages before this, talked about and noted and even disclosed several churches and denominations that have changed their doctrine, changed their acceptance then for the doctrine that does not line up with Scripture, particularly that is of marriage. Many churches, many denominations, unfortunately, are accepting the worldview of same-sex marriage. But listen, there's one thing, as we talked about last time in our message about Thyatira, to accept the unsound doctrine that the world is teaching, which is what happened to Pergamum, the church, the third church. But there's another thing to completely accept it and then preach it from the pulpit. Remember the commentary which stated, what was tolerated at Pergamum was actually proclaimed from the pulpit in Thyatira. So during the time from our last message to this one, I saw something I wanted to share with you that maybe made this case solid of how today the church has moved to a period, the church in general terms has moved to a time in which they're proclaiming same-sex marriage, unsound doctrine, not scriptural, from the pulpit. Sheila and I have started watching old episodes of The Amazing Race. In case you've never seen one episode or one season of The Amazing Race, it essentially is 11 teams of two. It's a pair of people that travel the world to try to win $1 million. They have a particular destination in which they must go to, somewhere around the world. 
and they must compete in the challenge once they get there. The challenges are known as roadblocks or detours, and they finish then that row as quickly as they can, or they must face elimination. That's the idea and the concept of the show, basically competing to be able to get to $1 million in places worldwide. But what is interesting really is the pairing of these teams. Remember, there's 11 teams of two. And typically you find it's things like a husband and wife traveling together and competing against others. Or maybe best friends from college paired together. Or a couple that maybe just started dating. Or one episode had a father and daughter. But one that struck out to me to grab my attention was season 12. When a team of two, the pair, traveling the world to compete in the amazing race, consisted of a lady named... Kate Lewis, and another lady named Pat Hendrickson. Guess both are women. Both are clergy in the Episcopal Church. But here's the catcher. They're married to each other. That's right. They are both ordained ministers in the Episcopal Church. Lewis is a priest at St. Cross by the Sea in Hermosa Beach, California. Her partner, spouse, Hendrickson, leads children at St. Patrick's Episcopal Day School. So here's the question to begin to ponder in my mind and related to the message today and to that five tire. I mean, what is their marriage then as ordained ministers conveying to people? I mean, I suggest to you what's conveying to the people is exactly precisely the situation occurring at Thyatira. A complete abandonment of what we know to be sacred, to be holy, to be biblical, to be doctrinal, and to be sound. I mean, in my mind, they're, they're practicing exactly what's written in verse 20 of Revelation chapter 2 compared to Thyatira, where it says they have a toleration of the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Think about the message then that sends the congregation their acceptance thereof, think about how it confuses our children. Leads them into mentality of the worldview rather than a biblical perspective. I suggest it poisons them. And we need to find an ointment to put on the poison. But the ointment then already exists. It is the word of God. That is what we need. That's what we need our children to hear. Is what we need proclaimed from the pulpit. Now, maybe if we go any further, we backtrack a little bit and maybe read again Revelation chapter 2. Again, the verses we're reading is uh, verses 18 through 29. You may remember the letter to the church of Thyatira is the longest of the seven letters. But let's stand together this morning and return to the reading about Thyatira, the dark church. And, of course, we'll have some understanding and application to follow as well. Revelation chapter 2, we start in verse 18. It says, The angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. But you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants 
to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you, verse 24, in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. O oh, Father, Lord, we're grateful to receive the message here today, Lord, to receive the word. I pray, Lord, that you be all of us here at Crossroads, and anybody listening here today, Lord, to receive this message and to be able to apply it directly to our lives. Lord, there are things changing within the church. And we pray, Lord, today that the church and its leaders would turn itself back to the word. Stand upon the word. Lord, here at Crossroads, we will preach the word. And I pray, Lord, then that you'll lead and guide and direct us here today to understand the letter to Thyatira, but also see how it pertains to all of our lives, wherever we may be. So let's be thankful what we shall learn, and how we shall apply here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you were here last time, perhaps you may have noticed in our first message pertaining to five tire, which was again two weeks ago, that we leap over the first verse, verse 18, that was given to the church. It's primarily the address, and leap into the, com the condemnation that was given in verse 20. I mean, the condemnation actually is verses 20 through 23. But we found in verse 20, again, we leap down to what's written in verse 20 about the toleration of Jezebel and the sexual immoralities being practiced at the church of Thyatira. But as you see verse 20 again and consider it, I mean, the referral to Jezebel in that verse, in the rebuke, the condemnation given to the church, was so grievous that it deserved an immediate elaboration and application. So that's why we jumped into it and began to elaborate and apply immediately what's written in the condemnation. But let us start over again. Backtrack just a little, if you will. Go back to the very beginning of the letter, verse 18. And notice something that we should not dismiss too quickly. And that's the way that Christ is described. Look again at the verse and listen. Of course, John writes, The words of the Son of God. Now listen. Whose eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, interestingly, this verse, verse 18, the first of the entire letter, provides us with not only the beginning, yeah, obviously, which is the address and description, but I suggest to you it points to two things that would help us as we think about the situation in Thyatira, or the situation evolving now today in the modern-day church movement. I suggest it gives us two points as a remedy for how we can correct things is progressive. And the two things then are this, that nothing, absolutely nothing, penetrates the darkness in this world today 
or the darkness of Thyatira better than Jesus' blazing eyes of fire. And the second application is that the feet of brass or bronze, depending on translation you may have, trample underfoot in judgment, whatever displeases him. Those two things can help us, so we expand upon those today. Now, as I mentioned in verse 18, it offers a description of Christ. But as indeed, above everything else, it is unique. Unique in that no other church has had or will have this type of address and description of Christ being given to them. But having said that, I want you to notice something. That this is not the first time that we've seen Christ described in this manner. If you go back to the beginning of Revelation in chapter, in chapter 1, in verses 14 and 15, you find very similarly written a description of Christ that we find at the church in Thyatira in their address in verse 18. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. John in his vision says the hair, he's talking about Jesus, seeing the vision, he says the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And then here it comes. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Of course, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. But notice how his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze is nearly verbatim. So we find to the address given to the church of Thyatira in the way that Christ described. I mean, it's nearly repetitious. It is repetitious. So to say then that we find it this way calls for us to have a time out rather quickly. Because the question now is this. Is this the way that you would describe Jesus Christ? His eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze? Is that the way we describe Christ to our family and friends? I mean, I don't know anyone that would describe Christ in this manner. But the fact that the description is repetitive, mentioned chapter 1, and then also now to the Church of Thyatira in chapter 2, it must mean something. So Dr. Paige Patterson then suggests that the feet like burnished bronze seem to represent strength, and that the description to blazing fire, as well as the burnished bronze, directly ties into Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. I think, okay, that's good information that oh, it helps me a lot, but that's good information. It's kind of informative. But other commentaries I read said this. It suggests a reference to his eyes like a flame of fire and the brilliant reflections of his feet emphasize the indignation and righteous judgment of Christ. So his eyes and his feet both represent and emphasize this righteous judgment of Christ. And I would tend to concur with that, at least considering that the church of Thyatira is blatantly committing gravest sin. They're blatantly committing grievous sin. He was already elaborated on, we talked about it two weeks ago, and even noted it a little bit today. Their sin is so grave, it's so deliberate, it's so disgusting, that is described or compared to Jezebel. Again, in verse 20, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, seducing my servants to practice sexual morality. That's disgusting. That's completely grievous. So when we have such type of sin as what's occurring in Thyatira, 
or maybe happens today in the modern day church. What is the remedy? What is the cure? That's our two points, which reveal again that nothing penetrates the darkness in the world or in our lives better than Jesus' blazing eyes of fire. And the feet, his feet, trample underfoot in judgment, whatever displeases him. I mean, listen, when sin becomes so blatant, so disgusting, so distasteful, we need, as individuals, corporately together in the church, we need Christ's penetrating, piercing eyes to expose that sin. We need it. But sometimes we overlook it. We need his blazing eyes penetrating our soul to expose our sin. And certainly, we need the bronze foot to trample us in judgment. We need this. In regards to the penetrating, piercing eyes, have you ever noticed, as maybe you were a child growing up, that how a single look from a parent could expose your wrongdoing? You ever notice that? It's like somehow, somewhere they know, and they just give you that look, also you think, man, I know I'm in trouble. I mean, I've known parents over the years who told me that when they give their kids a particular look, they didn't even have to spank them. The kids would just be reprimanded and start crying and like giving that certain look. Now, I'm thinking about when I grew up. I'm not sure that worked for my mom. But I think my mom took for granted what was written in Proverbs 13, 24 about don't spare the rod. So I think that worked on me better than that penetrating look. But I was talking to Sheila this morning, and she knows that I'm about to say this. So you can talk to her about it later. Because I have to admit that now being away from my mom and whatever discipline I got from her about not sparing a rod, Sheila does spare the rod. But she has the ability with something I've done or something I've said, and I get all of a sudden those penetrating, piercing blue eyes looking right at me, and I think, oh, no, what have I done? What have I said? I don't even know what it is. But when I get that look, I just start asking for forgiveness. Because I know whatever it is, I must have done it. You know, sometimes we just get that look. And we need that look. Because sometimes we overlook the fact that we sin. And sometimes it can be so distasteful, so blatant, that we need the blazing eyes looking at us. Now, in our lives, we unfortunately don't get literally the look from Christ. But nonetheless, when we have erred greatly, we could all of a sudden have the Holy Spirit to come upon us so strong that we know and we just drop to our knees and we ask for forgiveness. Maybe that is the look or the feel that we get when we know we've done something so bad and we need that in our lives. Sometimes it wake us up. But in thinking about that look, I couldn't help but thinking about Peter. Because Peter, you know, he did get that look. You know, back when Peter was denying Christ, when the people had come and seized Jesus and led him, led him away, they took him to the high priest's house, you may remember, in Luke 22, when they first had taken him and carried him away, there was the disciples kind of scattered. But Peter wanted to follow. You remember Peter followed? He got in the middle of the courtyard and they made a fire, sat down together. Peter sat with them. A servant girl said, you're one of them. He denied it. Later on, they, someone else came and said, you're one of them too. And he said, man, I'm not. But the third, third time, 
pick up the reading in Luke 22, verse 59, after an interval of about an hour, still another came and insisted, saying, Peter, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But what did Peter do in verse 60? He said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while I was still speaking, of course, the rooster crowed. But look at verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter got that look. We may not actually always get that look, those piercing, penetrating eyes. But we still nonetheless know when we've sinned. We don't literally get the look, but nonetheless, when we have air so great, like we mentioned just a few moments ago, the Holy Spirit can suddenly come upon us and we know that we've done wrong. And we drop to our knees to seek forgiveness. We need Christ's penetrating eyes to expose our sin. We need it. But in saying that we need it, let us also recognize that this is precisely what the modern church movement today also needs. The modern church today, contemplating, accepting, thinking, preaching these Im sexual immorality things, the, the eyes of Christ need to burn right through them to expose the false doctrine. They need the sin trampled, stomped out under the foot of Christ. Similar, maybe it was written in back in Genesis chapter 3 during the fall when the serpent, Satan or enemy, received his punishment. In Genesis chapter 3, look in verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We need to be trampled underfoot with the judgment of our sin. But as much as that then is the case, that we today, as individuals, as a church in modern day, use generically, we need the, we need the penetrating, piercing eyes to expose our sin, and we need the bronze of judgment. As much as we need that, let's focus upon how this did not happen overnight. And this didn't happen yesterday, and all of a sudden it occurred. It didn't even happen that way at Thyatira. Look with me at the accommodation given to the church in verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. I mean, read verse 19 correctly, reveals that five times was a great church back in the day. I mean, it wasn't always a sexually immoral, corrupt church. The people attending the service in the church in Thyatira was given a wonderful accommodation here in verse 19. Dr. David Jeremiah states that Thyatira received one of the best accommodations of all the churches. He says, in many ways, the service at Thyatira is better than that at the previous churches. Thyatira had the love, the Ephesus abandoned. The believers persevered the faith that was in jeopardy at Pergamum and shared with Smyrna the patience needed to endure suffering. He said, instead of backsliding, the church was going forward. That's his, that's his thought of Thyatira. I mean, it was a one time a wonderful church to attend. But something happened. Something happened that changed the church or would not be receiving such a harsh condemnation. But the question really becomes how did it happen? 
how did it happen that our entire changed in the way that we see? Or how is it today that all of a sudden the modern church has changed so much as it is? I mean, how can I present to you two clergy, two women married together as ordained pastors in a church? How is that even possible? How did it change? How is the church, God's house of prayer and worship, begin to gravitate and accept what the world is teaching rather than the word of God? How does that happen? That's the, that's the question we really must ask ourselves. How does this stuff happen? And the quick and short answer is that it's our enemy's work. That is Satan, of course, himself is up to all this. But again, we should note, as we find that to be the short answer, that it's a subtle approach. It's subtle, slow. And it didn't just change overnight, but has been rather years in the making. Very subtly, Satan has begun to move a Christian church into a mindset to accept the world and its doctrine, which then opens the doors to wickedness and evil and eventually a corrupt church. And more recently, I've noticed that perhaps you have as well how our enemy finds the young minds, our youth, to be easy prey. Notice that Satan works to manipulate the young minds. Or basically, really, we think about young minds, but it could be anybody that has less years of maybe some spiritual, uh, spiritual uh, maturity. Maybe those people who have not come to age a certain way, a time, or maybe don't have as much experience in the Word of God. And it's so easy then to convince the word, as we stand upon and preach here today, that the word is irrelevant. It is outdated, not even conducive to modern thought and reason. It's so easy at times to convince these young minds that this is outdated and useless. I mean, with the advance in technology and sciences, convincing someone with little spiritual maturity or a young mind that the Bible is real, irrelevant is not extremely difficult. I mean, basically, our children are taught from a very early age that believing in something without evidence is absurd. It goes against science and reason. But we refer to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is believing without seeing. It says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We accept that. If you stand upon the word of God, you accept that. But it's completely illogical to science. Science teaches that everything logical has evidence. There's no such thing as a miracle. There's got to be some other explanation. There's no such thing as a miracle. They teach that. They insist upon it. This week I found something rather interesting. That there is a new thought that has occurred for the parting of the Red Sea as written in Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus chapter 14, it records Moses splitting, dividing, parting the Red Sea. In chapter 14, verse 21, we know the text. It says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night 
and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Of course, verse 22 says the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, dry ground, the waters being a wall of them to the right and also to the left. So you have the Red Sea be completely divided, dry ground at Passover, right? We know, we've heard it for years. We accept that as being a miracle from God. But science will not accept that as a miracle of God. And they move in a way, they, they look at the method to be convince others there's a more reasonable explanation than that being a miracle from God. So this week I found Carl Drews, a software engineer. He recently published another theory that is currently being peer-reviewed and accepted as a strong possibility pertaining to the parting of the Red Sea. Drew's counters, listen, Drew's counters at the parting of the Red Sea, as described in Exodus 14 that we just read and we acknowledge as being a miracle, might well have originated in real life as a weather event. In his own words, he states this. He says, I am arguing that the historical event happened in 1250 B.C., and the memories of it have been recorded in Exodus. The people at the time gloried in God and thereby gave God the credit. Greg Holland of the National Center for Atmospheric Research reviews that theory by Drews and says this, it's solid work. It's solid work. Carl Drews has used impeccable science that establishes the physical possibility of a body of water to show where and how it may have happened. And the article goes on and on and on to dispute the word of God. So in short, they just simply won't accept it as a miracle, as written in the word. But that's not the only instance when science attempts to dispute the word of God. And there's, there's also the ongoing constant debate and argument between science and religion on the creation account and the age of the earth. Our children learn about the Big Bang and about evolution or Darwinism, with science insisting the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. However, the Word of God tells us that God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth. So if you take the Word and go through it and multiply and begin to add up how many years the Earth would be of age, you get the young age theory, which says about six to eight thousand years old, not even close. Six to eight thousand, not even close to 4.6 billion. So this conflict exists in between science and religion. It exists. And then for children, then, that are not in church, which is the large majority, as we go back to that particular statistic we mentioned weeks and weeks and weeks ago about how only 4% of the Generation Z as adhering to the biblical worldview. That means 96% are not. So majority then are not in church. It is easy. Is it hard to convince someone, young of age, that science is fact and religion is fantasy? So basically Satan is exploiting the sciences and penetrating hearts and minds of our young, inexperienced generation. It does not happen overnight. It's a slow, subtle approach that he's using, like slipping in the back door 
and making yourself welcome. That's his approach. That's what he's doing. Didn't happen overnight, changing five power, but slowly, subtly, it began to change. And the same thing has happened to the modern church today. Unfortunately, it happened at Thyatira. A slow, subtle approach, manipulation leading to corruption, and it's happening today as we discuss it into the modern-day church. The unsound doctrine is being preached in the pulpit in churches all across the country. And here's the thing. If we don't make an issue of it, if we don't stop it when it occurs and correct it, then we too could be easily fall to be a victim. We must insist upon the Word of God being the only thing preached from the pulpit. And as long as I'm your pastor, that's what it shall be. The Word of God only, not any other heresy. But going back to the letter, the church of Thyatira, I find it kind of heartbreaking as we review all that, that a prescription, because we all think about how can we help, what can we do, but a prescription is given only to the faithful remnant of Thyatira. Of course, you go back to verses 24 through 25, or 22 through 25, you see that in verses 22 and 23 that they pronounce judgment against the wicked. We find that, we talked about that last time in our, our letter, or message together with Thyatira, but look more specifically at verse 24 and 25, where he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, which we think about could be us, then, okay? Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. We're not accepting it. We're standing on the word of God. We're not going to refuse to do anything but have the word of God in the church. I do not lay on you any other burden. But the only thing he tells them then is only hold fast what you have until I come. In verses 24 and 25, we only find a voice of encouragement for the faithful. In Pergamum, the unrepentant sinners were instructed to repent at once or else, if you remember. It, repent now or else. But here at Thyatira, a single command is given to the faithful remnant who resisted the influence. We're resisting the infiltration of the false doctrine of the world into our church, so we're charged to hold fast, implying steadfastness and determination and integrity. Hold fast, he says, until I come. He says, hold fast. Our instructions, then it's to hold fast. It says, until I come. Now we should maybe also point out then, maybe emphasize that no one knows that day, time, and hour. But it's coming rather soon. Are you ready for that day? If Christ should appear today and call up his church to be home with him, would any of you be left standing around, left behind? I pray that none of us would ever be stand behind, left behind standing around. That every one of us prepared here today to go to be with him. If it happened today, we would be prepared to go with him. Because we refuse to accept what the world is teaching us. We have to educate our children. We have to continue to push them and push them to receive the word of God. And I know they may get sick and tired of hearing it. But they must hear the sound doctrine rather than what the world is teaching them. 
so they're not left behind. Because that day is rather approaching. It's definitely not getting further away. It's approaching. Each hour, each day getting closer and closer. And we don't have to be left behind. Because if you're left behind, if anyone is left behind, let the record say that it's going to be the most difficult period of that person's life. The people left behind will have seven years of God's wrath on earth. Seven difficult years, and most will not survive it. In Matthew 24, 22, it said if God had not shortened that time, no one could have survived. But today, 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 we can all get in our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because all we got to do is say yes to Jesus. And if you say yes to Jesus, you become an overcomer. Look with me as we prepare to end in verses 26 to 28. It says, the one who conquers, who keeps my works, or keeps my word until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule with a rod of iron. Verse 28, I will give him the morning star. John MacArthur notes that later, John, in his vision of Revelation in chapter 22, declares Christ to be the bright morning star. But he says, although the morning star has already dawned in our hearts, someday we will have him in his fullness. Are you ready to receive Jesus in his fullness and the glory to be with him when he calls us home? If so, recognize that it is only available for those who fully accepted Jesus as Lord. And I pray that all of us have accepted Jesus as Lord so we can see him in his glory. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you for how, Lord, it tells us of what we need to do in life to prepare for how we see things changing. Lord, maybe a little bit unfortunate for us as we think about how the instructions given to the church at Thyatira, that there's not a message there like it is a Pergamum calling upon to repent, repent or else. But Lord, nonetheless, it does tell us that we need to be prepared so we can be the overcomer to receive Jesus as full and complete as we possibly can have him as we see him in his glory. So Lord, I pray for all of us together as individuals and as a corporate together, Lord, in this church. They would look forward to the time you call us home. Lord, we don't want to miss and lose any loved ones. But Lord, we just want all of our loved ones to be there with us. So there be any here today who have never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray, we all pray together they would make that decision before it might be ultimately too late. So Lord, during this invitation, I pray that you convict the hearts, Lord. Lead and guide and direct us. For anybody listening, Lord, later to the message, would have any kind of questions, have them call. Just let them find Jesus, Lord before maybe too late. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.